Anyway, we're going to go this morning to uh, Genesis chapter 32, if you will. Genesis chapter 32. I'm honored that Pastor would ask me to speak to you about prayer. It is a, well, it is the key to power. It's the key to godly living. I remember hearing a preacher from uh, Texas years ago say, you know, I've, I've talked to men who have fallen into sin in the ministry. I've talked to men whose kids have uh, gone wayward. And he said, one of the common threads you find is neglect of prayer. And he said, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, but he said, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who really made a serious commitment to prayer who ends up having family members go wayward or their own life go wayward. And interesting hypothesis. I, I wouldn't have the facts to back that up, but I can tell you this. Uh, your, your likelihood of raising a godly family is going to be exponentially greater if you're spending time imploring God to do what you can't do for yourself. I like what one fellow said, a day without prayer is a boast against God. His name is Owen Carr. A day without prayer is a boast against God. Think about it. What we have said in effect when we don't pray is, thanks, Lord, but I'll handle it today. Now, we would never say that, but that's what prayerlessness says. A day without prayer is a boast against God. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard the quote from Samuel Chadwick. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. That really is true. Satan will do everything he can to keep us from praying. So I want to look with you at one of the most famous incidents in the life of Jacob, if you will, Genesis chapter 32. That is the incident of wrestling with God in prayer. In fact, that's what I've entitled this, wrestling with God in prayer. But we're not going to look at the actual wrestling match in this morning message, in the Sunday school hour. We're actually going to look at what preceded it, wrestling with God. It's in Genesis 32. And you remember at the end of the chapter, he comes down, he's wrestling with the angel, and he says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And, of course, in the end, God blesses him. And and there's a lesson there in in, uh, importunity, in persistence, in struggling in prayer. But what led to that? I want to read in verse uh, 1 down to verse 12, if you follow with me in your Bible there, a message I've called Wrestling with God in Prayer. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he uh, commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak to my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed there until now. I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, The Lord, which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred. I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." Now, you know, Jacob is, is sweating bullets here. He's coming back after all these years that he had worked uh, for Laban. And, you know, he worked so he could marry Rachel. 
course, Laban deceived him, and so he got Leah out of the deal first. And then he works seven more years, and he gets uh, Rachel. So now he's got two wives and number of children, and all these men servants and all this cattle that he's amassed. He's become quite a wealthy man. But you remember quite a difference here between uh, his treatment on this occasion toward Esau and when he left home. You remember he he connived the birthright. Now God wanted him to have the birthright, but he went about it the wrong way. He went he was Jacob, Eber, supplanter. He went about conniving. Now I believe God wanted him to have the birthright. But the problem is, you know, it's just like the scripture says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. God's work needs to be done God's way. And Jacob had started off in life doing things in the power of his flesh, conniving to get what he wanted. Is that the way a lot of us do things? You know, you can manipulate things. You can make things happen without depending upon God in prayer, without waiting on God and his timing. And uh, I think Jacob's a real picture of the Christian who's struggling along in the flesh. Yeah, he's a chosen man of God. He, God intended him to have the birthright. But early on, Jacob, the supplanter, used manipulation to accomplish means. He used scheming. But now he's coming to a crisis point in his life. So after he had connived the birthright from out, out from under uh, Esau, Esau was livid. You remember? He said, if I see him again, I'm going to kill him. And so his mother uh, said, you've got to flee. You've got to go. Uh, Rebecca said, you've got to go flee to my family and go find a wife and get out of here. So he had fled. Well, now he's about to meet Esau for the first time in 20 years. And uh, he's scared. He's petrified. He says, oh, man, he's coming with 400 guys. He says, look, let's divide up into two companies and let's do this. At the front of each company, we'll have all these oxen and donkeys, asses, and, you know, we've got all this. And just tell Esau he can have whatever he wants. He's trying to buy favor. And he's, he's sure this is not going to be good. He knows his brother had promised to kill him. And so in the midst of this crisis, he gets serious about prayer. Isn't it interesting some of our most earnest praying comes when we're facing the most difficult times in our lives? We'd like life to be easy, you know. And God tells us we're to pray for a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But a lot of times we'd rather not have problems. And yet it's many times the problems that cause us earnestly to look to the Lord. It's, it's when you have these life-threatening problems or these life-perplexing problems like, oh, I don't know what to do about my kids. They just are not, they're not responding to God's truth. It's times like that that really make us earnest in prayer. And that's what you see here. Wrestling with God in prayer. I really want to focus on two areas with you today as we look at this, this subject matter. First of all, let me give some background. And number one, I'm going to call the bases, and that's plural. Basis would be I-S on the end. This is E-S because it's plural. The bases for answered prayer. All right, what is the basis, plural, bases for answered prayer? And uh, there are two things to think about when it comes to the matter of how do I get my prayers answered? All right, we're going to look at the prevention of prayer being answered and the prescription for answered prayer. All right, so what about under this, the basis for answered prayer? First of all, prevention of prayers answered. Prevention of prayers answered. Now, before we turn to the actual scriptures, let me hear from you. What do you know hinders prayer? What are obvious things that hinder prayer? Okay, the most obvious is sin. All right, we all know. We'll get to that one in a minute. Okay, what else hinders prayer? Yeah, unbelief definitely hinders prayer. Okay, answers to prayer. Anything else? Uh, well, the Bible talks about the husband and wife relationship, you know, that your prayers be not hindered. If there's uh, animosity in our marriage relationships, that hinders prayer. Okay, anything else you know hinders prayer? 
All right, let's go to the scripture directly. I'd like you to look these up. Some of them you may be able to quote, but I'm going to give you three, three general preventatives to answered prayer. And the obvious one is sin. Let's start there and go to Psalm 66, 18. All right? Now, we're going to break down the Jacob passage in a minute, but I think this is an important background. Psalm 66, 18. If you don't have it memorized, first of all, I'd urge you to mark this in your Bible and also make a note to self. This is a good scripture to memorize. One of those, one of those basics you need to have. If I regard iniquity in my heart, what happens? The Lord will not hear me. What does it mean if I regard iniquity in my heart? Did any of you ever used to sign letters uh, with kind regards or with best regards? Anybody ever used to sign off on a letter like that? Okay, some of you did. And what does that mean? Some of you still do. Yeah, um, you know, when I write a thank you note, I'll often write gratefully yours. Okay, you you want to write something that kind of fits what you're writing. Well, when you sign a letter with kind regards or best regards, that means, you know, I'm thinking about you. I'm showing fondness toward you. That gives you the concept here of if I regard iniquity in my heart. It means if I'm coddling sin in my life, I'm making excuses for it in my life. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this in your house, but we had a disciplinary action not too long ago in the family. And uh, one of the children said, I'd rather just suffer the consequences than do it. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. But, you know, it was one of those deals. They were just thinking, well, I, I don't, that's nasty. And it was one of those nasty type jobs. You know, it wouldn't exactly have been dirtiest jobs, but it was one of those. And one of the kids said, oh, I'd, I'd rather be in trouble than do that. Okay, <laughs> we can arrange that. But, you know, we really don't want that course of action. because. And we dealt with the heart issue. And, you know, as we talked, it was... Yeah, you're right, Daddy. I should, you know, I should surrender my will. But you know how it is? Why, why do we do what we want to do? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned what? Everyone to his own way. All right, that's a verse you know. You ought to know. It's Isaiah 53, 6. You have a stubborn commitment to sin, and so do I. We are stubbornly committed to doing our own thing. In fact, we do what we do because we want to do it. That's, it's depravity. It's the sin nature. This is not a message on parenting, but let me just plug this in here. One of the most destructive things a parent can say or think is, my child would never do that. If you think that, you are setting yourself up for a fall. When I, when I was a Christian school teacher, the biggest problem was parents who thought little Johnny could do no wrong. Let me tell you, he or she can and they will. You know, uh, my kids, uh, sometimes people think, well, it's just, you know, we live in a bad part of town. We live in a bad environment. I'm an, I'm an evangelist, okay? We move every week, and we park on church parking lots. And so when my kids do wrong, there are no neighbors to blame. There are no, I mean, there are the cousins. My, you know, my in-laws live next door. Michael and his family can blame them. But really, my kids are the older ones. And you know what? You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say the neighbors made me do it. The fact is we are depraved. We are sinners. And if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Now, you know the, the best uh, news, though? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a, that's a passage, 1 John 1, 9, written to Christians. In fact, in verse 7, it says, if, uh, he, um, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, in context, that's dealing with the believer. I use that in personal evangelism all the time. It's true the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses the sinner from all sin, but he cleanses you from all sin. And one of the things you need to know is many times that Satan will, will, he first entices you into sin, and then he accuses you of the sin. When he, when he gets you to do it, you know, he'll say, come on, oh, you ought to do that. And then as soon as you do it, oh, look what you did. So the very one who entices you into it then accuses you of it. Have you, have you noticed that? 
And what happens is then we feel like, oh, there's no way I can pray now. I am not on praying ground. Listen, God never answered a prayer of mine because I was worthy of it. Nor did He answer yours because you were worthy of it. He answers because you come in Jesus' name. You come in His authority. You know, praying in Jesus' name is not just tacking that little formula onto the end of your prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. That means I'm coming on the merits of Christ. I'm coming on the basis of what He deserves, not what I deserve. So what do you do when you realize, I've sinned? Well, you know, everybody has. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Boy, that's great. He's faithful. You can count on His forgiveness every time. Sometimes you think, I've confessed that a hundred times this month. Surely God's not going to forgive me now. Well, wait a minute. He's not only faithful, He's just to forgive you. How can God be just to forgive sin? Well, because the wages of sin is what? Death. And what did Christ do? Christ died for our sins. Every time you recognize wrong in your life, you bring that sin back to God and say, Lord, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. If you can look back to that time, you've put your total dependence upon Him for salvation. And on the basis of what Jesus did for me, Lord, I'm coming to you for forgiveness because that lustful thought, that bit of gossip that I said, that hateful attitude, that moment of anger, whatever it is, call it what it is. Confess means to call it what God calls it. It's not just saying, oops, sorry God, I messed up. It's calling it what God calls it. That's the term confess, speaking the same thing. When you call it what God calls it, He's both faithful and just to forgive you that sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So, sin... We'll keep an answer from coming. In fact, uh, let's compare that to Proverbs 28, verse 9. This is another passage on sin. Proverbs 28, verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Well, that's that's pretty strong language. Think of the term abomination in the Scripture. That That's used of some pretty grotesque sins. Okay? You think of some really... You know, awful sins. I mean, um, sins of incest and um, uh, homosexuality and um, idolatry and some other things are called abominable. By the way, pride is called an abomination to God. Do you know that? Being proud is just as as wicked as being um, incestuous. But you know something? Here God says a prayer can be an abomination. Wow, that is strong language when you understand in the light of Scripture the way the word abomination is used. So can you imagine somebody praying and God just views that as reprehensible? Now, now what would make a person's prayer an abomination to God? Well, he tells you, if you turn away your ear from hearing what? God's law, God's word. You know, this is pretty just simple logic, but if I'm not listening to God, why on earth should he listen to me? If I'm not listening to God, and that's not just why well, I have my devotions, it's not just why well, I go to church, are you a doer of the Word, not just a hearer? Because if you hear but you don't do, then you're, what are you doing to yourself? You're deceiving your own self, according to James chapter 1, verse 20, 22 to 25. You're deceiving yourself if you hear but you don't do. So, look, if you're not having your devotions, well, th- that would be your first place to start. If you're not listening to Him, why should He listen to you? But maybe you are reading the Bible every day. But sometimes we can... We can do what I call going through the motions of devotions. You know, we open up the book and we're going through the Word, but we're not really letting the Word go through us. So he that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Um, In their teenage years, they've figured out how to be a little more subtle about it. But do you remember when you would talk to your children when they were real little, 
And you'd have to say, look at me, look me in the eyes. I'm watching this with my little nephew, Andrew. He's, uh, he's, two and, he's three now. And boy, you, you can see the battle of the will. And when mom and dad are trying to get him to do something that he doesn't want to do, they'll say, Andrew, look at me. And you know what he does? It's just like he cannot make himself look at them. Because he knows once we get eye contact, there's accountability there. What, what, a, what a picture. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. So, what is the prevention of answer to prayer in our life? Well, the foremost problem is sin. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. You know, it's God's desire that Christians receive regular answers to prayer. I remember listening to Dr. Rick Flanders' series on revival, and he was talking about uh, going through the book of John and finding there are five things that are normal when a Christians experiencing revival. Some of you may have heard him talk about that. And one of the things is regular, consistent answers to prayer. Boy, you ought to be able to look back over the last month and see consistent answers to prayer in your life. And one of the things I, I try to do is make time to pray every day. Last night I was walking. I'm a, I'm a late nighter. You know, I'm a, uh, last night, I'll just tell you, my prayer time is about 1.30 in the morning. And, uh, and I had a 6 o'clock prayer meeting at our church this morning that I went to, too. So last night wasn't a whole lot of sleep night. But I'm usually the late night guy. You know, I guess evangelists are wired that way. We, I come home from evening service after uh, preaching, you know. And our kids, we, pro- we usually have family devotion time when we're having it at about uh, 10, 10.30 at night. I keep telling your dad when he comes up to my place, he's on my schedule next time. So anyway, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not your typical person this way. You've got to find a time that works for you. But last night I was walking, um, we live on Brighton Avenue in Kansas City. That's right where 435 and 35 intersect on the northeast side of town there. And uh, they recently widened our street and renovated it, and it's got lights. It's really nice. So I'm walking, and I have my prayer time there. And, you know, one of the things I do when I'm praying is thinking about not just naming somebody before the Lord, but I'm looking for something specific. I remember I was in college. I read John R. Rice's book, Prayer, Asking and Receiving. And he said, there are a lot of things that we do when we pray. We worship God and we thank God for things, etc. But he said, when it comes down to it, the, the goal of prayer is asking of God something and receiving from God something. Uh, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find. Um, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So that was uh, Matthew 7, 7 and Jeremiah 33, 3. And the, Lord's, the Lord wants to give us things. And my daughter is 11, Heather. She asked me not long ago, Daddy, why, why don't we pray? Now, it wasn't a malicious thing. It wasn't a, well, why don't we have to pray? It was one of these, Daddy, she said, God knows everything, doesn't he? And I said, he sure does. She says, you ever think about why does God want us to pray if he knows what we need before we ask? I said, that's a good one, Heather. <laughs> Let me think about that. And uh, you know the, the bottom line answer I came to as I was thinking it through? There are a lot of probably nuances to this. But... You don't know that you've received something from God unless you've asked specifically for something from God. And the more specific you are in in answers to prayer, in in requests to God, the more certain you'll know that answer came from God when it's all said and done. Some of you may remember, uh, it was uh, 2002, we did a combined uh, Labor Day picnic with you all at Eagle Heights. We were at the Red Barn up in Weston. Was it Weston? Yeah. And maybe some of you were there. That particular weekend, I was in great need of a truck, and I'm there again. Our truck died recently, the one I'm going to tell you about. But in 2002, I had sold a truck, and I was needing a truck. We don't, we don't go into debt for things in our family. We've just 
determined to wait on God for his provision and, uh, and try to make our needs known to him alone as, as much as lies within us. So we, we were asking the Lord, Lord, we really need a truck. And I was praying for a truck. Um, I had a few specifics. I asked God for a 1999 or newer, this was an 02, with 50,000 miles or less. I wanted a Ford F-350 at the time to pull my trailer. And I, pray, I needed a dually. And I also prayed that it would be manual. So I said, Lord, I need a 99 or newer F-350, 50,000 miles or less, uh, manual transmission, dually. And uh, praying and praying, and I mean, we were down to the last week before we were supposed to leave. We, we had sold our truck, I think, three weeks before that. We had Tom Farrell's old gas truck, and we sold that. And then we were down to three weeks left before we were to leave. I was preaching over at Tri-City Baptist in Independence, and telling them, you know, pray with us. We, we, we've looked at a number of trucks, but we, we're not going to buy it if we don't have the cash to buy it. And just to find those exact specifications, that was really something. We got down to Wednesday of that week and didn't have a truck yet. And I remember thinking, man, you know, Lord, time's running out. We really need a truck. And everyone we had looked at kind of fell through. And that particular morning, the Lord impressed on my heart a message my pastor had preached a few years before on Jehoshaphat and how when he began to praise the Lord, the Lord sent ambushments among the people. And praise, a weapon with I preached that at the, uh, the picnic back in 02. And so I started to praise the Lord. I said, forget me badgering heaven with, Lord, we need this, we need this. Lord, I'm going to praise you because you'll provide that truck and you are good. The phone rang just after I started that praise session. It was my pastor. He said, hey, you want to go look at a truck? And, you know, I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah, there's some guy in Sedalia, you know, two hours east of where we were. And uh, he's got a truck. And he said, but I called him. He said, well, I, I'm out of town right now, or you could come look at it. My pastor just happened to ask him, where are you? And uh, he said, well, I'm in Kansas City. I use the truck to pull used cars. And he said, what exit? And he told him it was seven miles from our church. Oh, our pastor was Richard King. Some of you remember Brother King worked over here during your before Brother Graham came. And so uh, Pastor King and I jumped in the church van we went on down to look at it 1999 with 50,000 miles six-speed manual transmission and uh and it was a dually as well i mean everything i oh and then when i asked his asking price he said twenty-two thousand dollars. that's what we had on that's what we had that week to be able to buy a truck the lord had given us just the amount we needed now the funny thing is the one detail i didn't pray about was color and uh you talk about the lord's humor my father-in-law is an evangelist, Angela's dad, and he had for years had a black Chevy, and I had always had the white Ford, and I've always been a Ford guy. So I'd give my father-in-law the business. I'd say, you know, back in the old cowboy movies, Dad, the bad guys had the black, and the good guys had white, and, you know. Well, when I went to pick up that truck, guess what color it was? Black. <laughs> and guess what color truck my father-in-law has? White. <laughs> He's got the white Ford, and I had the black Ford. It was funny. But, you know, I told my daughter, when you pray specifically, and God answers specifically, what glory he gets, what honor that brings to his name. Now, sin prevents that. Go to James chapter 4, if you will. James 4. Remember the scripture, too. Um, someone said, prayer is not conquering God's reluctance. It is taking hold of God's willingness. You ought to think about that. Prayer is not conquering God's reluctance. It's taking hold of God's willingness. That would be verified by Psalm 84.11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. If God is withholding something from you, one of two things is true. Either he's going to teach you more in the process of wrestling, or he's going to say no, and if he says no, it's because he's protecting you. All right. Look at James 4. Verses 1, 2, and 3. 
From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. All right. Now, in the prevention of answered prayer, we see sin, but there's something else. What does he mention in verse 2? Why do you not receive according to verse 2? You don't ask. Okay, let's call this one silence. Silence. Now, let me, let me explain. You say, well, I would think if you're praying, you're not being silent. I've often had people say, well, I'll tell you what, God doesn't answer my prayer. I don't want to be unkind, but I think if I were to push the issue a lot and say, well, how much have you actually been praying about it? You see, sometimes we have what I call a heavenly wish list. Remember when you were a kid and your parents say, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Well, if you get a list together, by the time you were finished, your parents said, there is no way you're going to get all these things. But you had your wish list. Some of you remember the days of you know, the Sears catalog, and you'd go through the Sears of Penny catalog and get all that kind of stuff. Now, pray tell, kids have unlimited access on the Internet, man. They can find everything. They can have a huge wish list. Well, a lot of times we have a wish list. We've got this list of things that we wish God would do for us, but you have not because you ask not. Yeah, heard a preacher say years ago, you've got to pray the price. Pray the price. You know, there, there's effort to be put into it because when, when you wrestle with God in prayer, when you, when you go through the process of just uh, laying it before the Lord and begging the Lord for something, there's value in it when you receive it. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it's a tree of life. book of Proverbs tells us that. And when you've wrestled and labored and, and then you receive the answer, uh, God provides things for you that you couldn't do for yourself, but there is... There's labor involved in it. And so, you have not because you ask not. How much time do you really put into praying? Boy, I remember years ago hearing that the average Christian prayed four minutes a day. The average preacher prayed eight minutes a day. I don't know what the statistics would be now. But wow. How much, I mean, other than meals, other than your 30-second, thank you, Lord, for this food, how much time do you really put in prayer? One reason we don't get answers to prayer is silence. But there's another. Verse 3 says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Uh, the word miss is at the root of that term. It's off mark, off target. You ask amiss. Um, I call that one selfishness. Selfishness. Lord, please, I've been buying these lottery tickets for years and I haven't won the big one. Please, Lord, help me win the lottery. You laugh. But, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll use this uh, approach when I'm at a restaurant and I'll ask the waitress, hey, Listen, we're a group of Christians. We pray before we eat. Uh, is there anything we could pray for you about? I have on a number of occasions had people say, pray I win the lottery. <laughs> now, what would be wrong with that prayer? Well, you're asking amiss. Okay? Bible says, he that hasteth to be rich shall not be innocent. And one of the num- numbers of reasons that I personally am against the lottery and gambling, etc. But uh, you're asking amiss. Oh, Lord, please give us a nice fancy house. Well, is that so you're, you're going to take in, you know, 25 orphan kids or mm, you just kind of like it? Okay. Now, I will say this. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory, Philippians 4.19. And seek you first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6.33. How many of you can attest that God has met your needs? Would you raise your hand? Okay. He's met your needs. Not by your standard, his standard. You know what his standard is? Having food and raiment. Let us be there with content. Food and covering, clothing, shelter. All right, now, how many of you would testify that God has 
going above and beyond your basic needs. Yeah, you're an American. You have above and beyond your basic needs. Even people in welfare in this country are rich compared to much of the world. All right? But see, so often we just, we're consumed with self. And so when we do get praying, oh, sometimes we're really passionate about something. And we think, why didn't God answer it? Well, could be sin, could be silence, or could be selfishness. All right, now, what is the prescription for answered prayer then? We're looking all this under bases, the bases for answered prayer. A was the prevention of, B is the prescription for. Let me show you three passages that give us the prescription for answered prayer. Mark chapter 11, if you will. Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, 22 through 24. Mark 11, 22 through 24. Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Now, there are a lot of groups that run with that, and they build a whole philosophy of name it and claim it. If you can dream it up, if you can scheme it, God will do it. Hmm. Is that what he said? Well, no, because you have to balance all this with the other passages, such as if you, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Well, what, what does he mean if you, if you have faith in your heart, if you really believe, what, whatever you desire when you pray, believe you receive it, you shall have it. Well, there is a balance here because, you know, a lot of times we go into prayer thinking God's never going to answer this, or I don't think God's going to say yes. We go in defeated. And if you, if you don't believe that he will, why should he? I think all of us believe that God can do things. But the real issue is, well, I just don't know if he's going to do it for me. Remember this, he's no respecter of persons. He wants us to learn to pray based on Jesus' righteousness, not our own, on the Lord's worthiness, not our own, on, on the Lord's acquisition, not what we've acquired from God. And so the belief here, well, I think the best way to illustrate it, years ago, centuries ago, George Mueller had started the orphanages there in Bristol, England, to prove to the world that God hears and answers prayer. And some of you have heard this story. So Mueller, Mueller said that uh, he had personally seen over 30,000 answers to prayer either within one day of praying or within a week of praying. And he chronicled. Between one day to one week of praying, 30,000 answers to prayer. Now, there were others that he did not see so immediately. Some took months and some years. But, uh, in fact, he had five people that he prayed to get saved. The first one, it took a year and a half. The second one was five years from there. And it was six more years for the third. The final two, uh, the last one got saved at Mueller's own funeral. And it had been 63 years, I think, from the time that, they, that he started praying. So while he saw some immediate answers, many, 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 there are others that took a long time. Uh, what I was saying about Mueller, after he died, his son-in-law took over the place. And one day, son-in-law was giving the tour of the orf- orphanages there. There was a woman who was a donor to the ministry. And she said, my, my, must take an incredible amount of faith to sustain all this. And Mueller's son rebuked her. He said, my dear woman, great faith in a weak plank will land me in the creek. But weak faith in a strong plank will carry me across the creek. It's not the greatness of our faith. It is the greatness of our God that has done what you see here. That's a good perspective. If you have great faith in a rotted old plank, you're going to land up in the creek. But you may have really weak faith, and if that plank's strong, it's enough to get you across. 
It's the object of the faith that is the focus here. And if you and I come to God, well, Lord, I know you're probably not going to answer my prayer. Well, you're right, he's not, because you're not putting much confidence in him. But when you come in prayer believing and you know whatever you ask God is fully able to do, you're in a position to receive. So the first key is believe. Prescription for faith is, uh, prescription for answer prayer is believe. And then look at 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Right, 1 John 3.22, another good one to mark and memorize. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because... Okay, what is the reason? Why? What's the basis for answered prayer here? Yeah, we obey. Okay, so the first key is believe. The second key is obedience. Obey. Believe, obey. Okay, so we're going to use the verbs believe, obey. Then there's one more. Look at John 14, verses 13 and 14. John 14, verses 13 and 14. This is in the great passage on revival in verse 12 where Jesus promises the greater works. And then he says this in verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, now what's the interest here in prayer? Glorifying God. Believe, obey, glorify. In fact, I like to tell people, I want to get you bogged down in the details. B-O-G, all right? That's the basis for answer prayer. Believe God, obey God, glorify God. Let's get bogged down in those details. So the prevention of answered prayer is sin or silence or selfishness in many forms. On the contrary, the basis then for getting your prayers answered, the prescription to this problem is we're to believe God, we're to obey God, we're to glorify God. Now, let's finish up in Genesis then where we started, where Jacob is coming to Esau and he is scared to death. In verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, I'm sorry, 9 through 12, we see here's the second area, the basics of effective prayer. All right, We looked at the bases for answered prayer, number one. Number two is the basics of effective prayer. I love to go to the Bible and find, why do these guys get answers to prayer so much more um, commonly than we do? I mean, if you had to think back right now, if I put you on the spot, so name the last answer to prayer you had. Now, maybe you'd forget, maybe you'd think, oh, let me think. But I hope you wouldn't have to go too far back in your memory banks to get an answer to prayer. Now, if you're not praying, you don't know if you've had any answers to prayer. And if you're not praying about some people over and over again, you're not going to remember. You know, if you only pray about something once and you forget, you're not going to remember. So, importunity, sticking with it. I love to study prayers in the Bible because you see these prayers had teeth to them. All right, notice the basics of effective prayer. First of all, look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says to me, return unto thy country. All right, first basic of effective prayer is adoration of God's person. Adoration of God's person. I'm going to beat this drum a little bit later, so I won't touch on it long here, but he tells us to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with what? Praise. Praise is a powerful preliminary to receiving from God. It's a powerful prelude to receiving answers to prayer. And we'll get into that more in more depth later. Adoration of God's person. Then, notice the last part of verse uh, 9. Lord, you said to me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Oh, I'm sorry, what I was talking about there was he said, uh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. There was a family history here. His grandfather Abraham 
had received covenant promises from God. His father Isaac had received covenant promises from God. He himself would. Jacob became Israel, you know. And he was the one to whom God fulfilled these promises. He said, Lord, you're the covenant-keeping God. And he calls him, Lord, you're the boss, you're the master, you're the owner. So he starts with adoration of God's person. And then you have here acceptance of God's prerogative. Acceptance of God's prerogative. What's a prerogative? God has the right to make the choices, all right? The prerogative is one's one's within his full rights to make such a decision. Notice, you said, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Now, Lord, I'm heading back home because you told me to go, but Esau's meeting me, and he intends to kill me. Now, Lord, please, you've got to help me. Uh, when I purposed that we would not go into debt for things, I've often had that kind of talk with the Lord. Lord, you're the one who told me not to go into debt. I could go to the bank and get a loan and get a truck real quick. But uh, you're the one who told me not to go into debt for things. God does not ever mind being held to his principles and his promises. He wants us to push the issue with him. And so here's here's an appeal. The acceptance of God's prerogative. Lord, you have ownership in my life. You're the one who told me to go back to my homeland, to Canaan. You've got to help me here. So adoration of God's person, acceptance of God's prerogative. Then, verse 10, acknowledgement of personal unworthiness. There's the acknowledgement of personal unworthiness. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I'm become two bands. I'm scared to death, Lord. I've divided my family up. I'm not worthy of anything here. So he's not coming saying, Lord, you've got to do this for me. He owns up to his own unworthiness. I'm not worthy of your mercy, your truth. Okay? Powerful praying. Then um, D, appeal for God's protection. Look at verse 11. Appeal for God's protection. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Uh, Simple little thing, but when I take prayer walks, you know, I'm usually along some road somewhere, I constantly pray, Lord, I'm not out here to tempt you, and please don't let me get shot. (laughs) I live in the city, and you hear about drive-by shootings, and I don't want every car that's coming up behind me at night for me to think about, oh boy, you know, is there some wacko? I just commit myself to the Lord and say, Psalm 91, you know, your prevention, uh, your protection upon my life, Lord, I'm not here to tempt you, so please protect me. Same thing when we travel. We travel 25,000 miles a year on the roads, beside air flights, etc. I'm always praying, Lord, I need your protection. But, you know, you don't want to presume upon God's protection. You pray for it based on his promises. So there's appeal for God's protection. One more thing. E, affirmation of God's promise. Look at verse 12. Affirmation of God's promise. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know what he's saying? If you let Esau kill me right now, that promise isn't coming to pass. Because we're going to get slaughtered, and that'll be the end of my seed being as the stars of heaven. Lord, you made a promise. And, you know, I constantly pray now, whenever we need a truck or a trailer, uh, Lord, you know, you've called me to do this, and you said, my God shall supply all your need. If I'm going to travel, I've got to have a truck to travel. I've got to have a trailer to stay in. You kept John Wesley on a horse all those years. You can keep me in a truck. So, Lord, I'm looking to you to meet your promises. We'll talk more about that later. But if you missed any of those five, let me just review them real quickly. There's adoration of God's person, 9A. Acceptance of God's prerogative, 9B. Acknowledgement of personal unworthiness, that was 10. If you miss more than these, come up and see me. I'll give them to you later. There's appeal for God's protection in verse 11. There's affirmation of God's promise in verse 12. Now, what happens is you get to the end of the chapter, and that's where that night 
a man meets Jacob and he wrestles. What do you think his initial thought was when that angel started a wrestling match with him? Probably thinks Esau has found him and he, oh no, I'm a dead man. Sometimes we don't understand God's dealings with us. And he wrestles and then he realizes this is an Esau. He realizes it's an angel. He says, what's your name? I can't tell you. He said, let me go. The angel says, let me go because the, the, the dawn is approaching. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And you remember God blessed him that night? He said, you're no longer Jacob. You're no longer deceiver, supplanter. You're Israel. Israel's prince with God. One thing about a prince, he don't have to beg for anything. William and Harry will never have to beg for anything in their lives because they're royalty. Israel, prince with God. And what Jacob learned through this encounter was... You, you don't get things by scheming and conniving. Oh, you can, but always with all the fallout. The way God wants you to learn is to receive things through prayer. And so in this, we have then, uh, wrestling with God in prayer, we have some really good elements of effective praying. That's a foundation for where we're going to go this morning. Father, thank you for giving us instruction in the Word on how to pray. Oh, the disciples were so on target when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Really interesting. They never said, teach us to preach, teach us to win souls. They knew the key to all of that was prayer. And I would echo that. I would ask today, Lord, teach us to pray. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.